0: Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Feminist Current Affairs programs, produced by women and gender diverse broadcasters at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, on unceded Kulin lands, and broadcasted nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Senya. On today's show, we are diving into disability justice. As we head into holiday season and peak COVID period, we hear Iris Lee's interview with Farada about their experience with long COVID and the failure of the Australian healthcare system. We then hear Priya Kunjan's interview with independent queer researcher Dr Shoshana Rosenberg about disability and trans solidarity with Palestine in the face of Israel's ongoing violent occupation. Note that this interview covers some distressing content around state violence and genocide. Let's first hear Iris's interview with Faraday.
1: Well, yeah, I'm, I guess, a long-term activist. I currently have long COVID and I've had it for just over a year. And yeah, I guess having long COVID impacts my capacity, significantly impacts my capacity to be politically active. However, having long COVID... I feel quite angry about the situation of people with long COVID. I feel that, yeah, the government is not doing its job to uh, either to protect people or to educate the public about long COVID. Yeah, I'm sort of just starting out in activism again with the campaign for like disabled accessible public transport stops along Sydney Road. And yeah, I'm getting a little bit involved in a couple of other things too.
2: Yeah, a number of threads in there. We'll we'll speak about today. First, would you like to speak about your experiences navigating health and long COVID in recent times?
1: I had a pretty terrible experience with a doctor the first time I tried to seek medical help, and yeah, you hear you hear real horror stories from what people have been through. Just yeah, um, the doctor I saw. Like, he basically believed that I had long COVID, right? But he also tried to weasel his way out of properly diagnosing me because he didn't want to write a medical certificate. And yeah, he, he, it felt very like a gaslighting sort of situation. At one point, he told me, you don't have depression. He didn't ask me, do you have depression? He didn't read the literature on long COVID, that would have led him to the conclusion that pretty much everybody with long COVID struggles with de- depression. He just told me straight up, you don't have depression, therefore I'm not writing you a medical certificate sort of thing. So that, that's the sort of thing we've got to deal with. There's, na- there's no national standards for uh, health care. And um, that's one thing the long COVID community is pushing for, is just a, a national framework for medical professionals to address Yeah, about how they should treat us.
2: What would you like to see around, like, activist or queer circles around the practice of going about things in terms of the needs of people with long COVID?
1: Well, first of all, I think the long COVID community itself needs to be more organised. Self-organisation is very difficult for us for obvious reasons. A lot of us are bedridden a lot of us struggle to function, let alone get politically organised. However, we are—we have been getting organised slowly, and there are some people who, yeah, at risk to their own personal health, really are doing a tremendous around amount of work to fight for our rights. I think we will get more organised, and we will have a more public-facing campaign. We've—we already, we already have a petition out. And so the petition is for us to have access to antiviral drugs, like we people with long, there's a bunch of people, like categories of people that the government has decided are eligible for antiviral drugs. But people with long COVID, ridiculously, are not not one of those categories. We can't catch COVID again. <laughs> for me personally, it's debilitating enough to catch it the first time, let alone the thought of catching again. And a lot of people are getting reinfected actually in the long COVID community with this mm. the, the current wave of COVID going on now. So yeah, we've got our petition. I'd like people to come behind that. If you Google search that petition about access to antiviral drugs for people with long COVID, I think you'll be able to find it. It's It's got heaps of signatures. Like I think it's got over 10,000 signatures or something. We, we have been talking about uh, doing some sort of protest at Parliament House. Uh, the internet, the global day of action about long COVID is the 15th of March. So keep your eyes peeled for something around about that date. There are things people can do just to help us. Like, yeah, g- g- giving us lifts to places is one basic example. Because like I said, we can't easily use public transport necessarily. As far as like etiquette, around activist circles goes like I I appreciate it when people mask up and it's sort of become the norm that people don't um and I would like to see like masks provided more at political events however like I I, yeah I think with the whole vax versus anti-vax or mask versus anti-masking arguments that have gone on in society I, I sort of think that that sort of create a dynamic of people fighting each other instead of the government and um, letting the government off the hook. So I think, yeah, I agree with more masks. However, it's not the first point I want to push. The first point I want to push is that we have got to come together and hold the government accountable for this complete mess that it has gotten us into around long covid
2: yeah, definitely around ten to fifteen percent of people who were infected by the Omicron, the first one of the first few waves of Omicron did end up with long COVID. So it's a very widely spread thing that that capitalism is just like asking us to privatize the costs of it in terms of the government's not accountable for like this mass disabling event.
1: One one thing I think we can all come behind is that the government has to just fund healthcare. Like our healthcare system is gutted and it's showing. And th- this is not just impacting people with long COVID. This is impacting everybody who, yeah, well, uh, mainly it impacts the poor. I, I guess the wealthy have access to proper healthcare, but we don't. You've you got to pay for a, any dec- decent medical attention, uh, like around long COVID um, a lot of the time. We've we got to pay for all our medications. Clinic 19, like the clinic that I'm seeing about long COVID, they're really good, by the way. I recommend them to anyone who has long covid. But yeah, there's, they're no longer able to do telehealth, or, or soon they won't be able to do telehealth appointments for like the first appointment a person has, and that will rule out a lot of people from being able to access that service, which is a damn shame. So the government's just gotta take it seriously. Yeah, we 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 got to be able to have telehealth appointments.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's pretty shocking what's going on now in terms of how much things have been winding wound back, and like the already existing austerity and organised abandonment. There, it's pretty shocking. Mm. And yeah, thinking about also what has been the other aspects of, I guess, long COVID is like finding like community with other people with long COVID. What has that been like for you?
1: Wonderful. We we have our Facebook group, the Australia Long COVID Community. And yeah, if you have long COVID, totally get on that. I, 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 I got more advice, good advice from there than from anywhere else, just from being able to talk to other people with long COVID. And I, I found a quality, G, like a quality GP through that network. I found sound advice about how to manage symptoms. I found just moral support, you know, like people who are going through the same thing and being able to, yeah, not feel alone. And yeah, there's thousands of us in that group. It's a pretty big group. So totally get on that. And also, yeah, friends who have long COVID have reached out to me and I'm really grateful for that. Like there, there is sort of a people coming together sort of aspect of what's going on with long COVID, which is nice in as far as we're able, because we can't hop on the tram. <laughs>
2: awesome I also know like humor's like played a role as well in those groups and I've seen you post them online
1: yeah there's a there, there is a I get what, what it's called the COVID long home the COVID long haulers humor therapy group I think it's called yeah there's lots of hilarious memes <laughs> that yeah that it's good they help us get through the day it's pretty dark. Like, probably yeah. people with, who don't have long COVID don't find these memes funny, but to us, they're hilarious.
2: Yeah, <laughs> definitely.
1: Watani, when I can meet my friend without going through an Israeli checkpoint policy Watani, when I feel safe without the concern of any conspiracy is defending my right not being victim of fake diplomacy is not being controlled by everyone in the name of democracy Many have sang for homeland but I tell a story that is different I speak a story of belligerence and hopes of potential difference I live in a world where I'm bound to move as I move with restriction, although I'm free. But according to the media, reflection a kind of media that shows a killer affection. A media that turns us into a nation of hopelessness and objection that leaves me questioning whether it's formed by actual people or marionette dolls. Freedom can be limited by walls. Watani ilayka salam, an yamut zaman. Watani. إليك المسير مهما كلف ثمن وطني ستشرق يوما مهما قالوا عنك العدم لك الموسيقى والألحان لك الصوت والقلم وطني فرحة عروس على الحاجز عم تتفتش لا يمنعوا عنها الحب المحب حرية شرح أستادي واليوم الثانين حبس جدارهم العالي بمنع عالمية نفس وطني ريحته حلوة لما يبطلوا يرموا قنابل الغاز مش بس خبر على شاشة التلفاز هو اللي ما بنساني في الوقت اللي بحاول أطلب لجوء إنساني وطني ضحكه بتتسلل بعد ما العدو هجرني وبتاني برتقال يا فاليوم نذاني ثمار بتنسر شجري لا تنبع على إنها من وطن ثاني من وطن ثاني قصة لش عم ما بينسى وشوارع مهما ضاقت علينا ما بتكسى ثوب مطرز لجد الحجه لتحكي التاريخ بصر بصرتو من بشرتي لان الشمس لما تزورها بتعكس على جبهتي الأحرف حرف بكلمه الالوان برسمتي وطني كوفيه بلبسها ملتم لا حتى يرجم حرب بتهدم قرى كل يوم بنام فيها بحلم وطني حاسب بتاع كانت الباقيه لحتى يسترزق اجيال بتتعلم حقوق تطبق مستقبل مشرق وطني باستحق الحياة وفيه ما يعشق فيه ما يعشق فيه ما يعشق وطني إليك السلام إلى أن يموت الزمن, يموت الزمن وطني إليك المسير مهما كلف الزمن وطني ستشرق يوما مهما قالوا عنك العدم لك الموسيقى وال. لك الصوت والقلم مخلفات حرب بتنعمالي بيوت ورد وطني كان فاني بوصف امسا على المغرب وطورة الحق والوعد طريق الالام المقدس مصر النبي كدساً اقدس وطني لاجئ ألوان بتزين حيطان الملاجئ حل بعيوننا مهما تتطمر فينا روح راح تعمر جيل قادر يبدع ويفكر شعب بيملك ارض ارض بتملك شعب بينهم رابطين فكصاب
0: and that song we heard was Watani by all-girl Palestinian hip-hop collective Etija. On community radio around Australia, you were listening to Women on the Line. You just heard Iris Lee's interview with Farada about their experience with long COVID disability and the cracks in the Australian healthcare system. Up next, we hear Priya Kunjan's interview with independent queer researcher Dr. Shoshana Rosenberg about disability and trans solidarity with Palestine in the face of Israel's ongoing violent occupation. This interview covers some distressing content about genocide and state violence. If you need to speak to someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners can call 13YARN. And queer listeners can call QLife on 1800 184 527. Let's hear from Shoshana.
3: We've been discussing this um i guess over the over the past few days, but also kind of um across conversations that we've had since october seventh mm-hmm. um, something that that kind of slips out of view under these conditions of such urgency um and such absolute tragedy and violence is the fact that genocide is a mass disabling process and This relates to both what we're seeing in Gaza as well as in the West Bank. And listeners might be familiar with, you know, longstanding shoot to maim policies that the um, Israeli occupation have um, explicitly deployed uh, beginning in the in the 2018 Great March of Return. Um, But also, you know, we've seen the destruction of health and other social infrastructure in Gaza that contributes to this, um, this disabling context. So, I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to understanding the Israeli occupation of Palestine as a disability justice issue.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's very interesting because um, you mentioned the shoot to main policy, which, you know, we, we know was kind of made a, an actual visible policy. But we know that the reality is that every genocidal regime, and Israel is a a genocidal regime, has sadism at its core, negative sadism at its core. Um, And that means that actually shooting to kill is less satisfying than actually ensuring that people are alive but suffering and incapable of defending themselves. And that's partly what we're seeing. So, yes, in 2018 or whenever it was, the Israeli government officially said, oh, we're shooting people in the knees, we're making people disabled. But that has always been the case, and that is what we're seeing. So, you know, control by controlling people by killing them is one thing, but for in order for, for a regime to actually have lasting impact, it needs to also make it clear, I will maim you, I will disable you, we will make it so that even if you want to fight back, you will not be capable of fighting back. And that is what we're seeing here with the destruction of hospitals, with the killing of doctors and nurses, with the shoot to main policy, with kneecapping people, with, you know, making sure that people are killed, uh, who aren't killed, are hurt in such a way that they have amputations, that they have, you know, all and all, everything that comes from that, the chronic pain, the trauma. I don't even want to say PTSD because there's no post. Mm. The constant trauma response that you're sort of forced into, all of that is disabling and all of that is baked into what Israel is trying to do with Palestinians. They're not just trying to annihilate them. They're trying to ensure that future generations cannot fight back.
3: I mean, members of the Disability Justice Network of Australia published a statement of solidarity with Palestine in 2021 in Overland. And this was during the uprising um, around settler encroachments, in, uh, particularly into the Sheikh Jarrah and other Palestinian neighborhoods. And that statement included an emphasis on attending to the disabling conditions that Palestinians are con- constantly subjected to, as you've talked about. but. How does this acknowledgement then compel particular orientations of solidarity from disabled folks elsewhere, including yourself?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's a very important question because as much as I think it's important to talk about the fact that Israel is intentionally and has been from the start intentionally not just killing but also having a focus on ensuring that people are disabled, I also want to make it clear that and and, and this is perhaps in some way where Israel's sadism has gotten in the the way of them, Israel's inhumanity has gotten in the way of it, of of seeing that actually disabled people are still activating, disabled people are still involved in these movements in Palestine and out of Palestine. And I think that that's that's partly what we need to to look at. And in some ways that is, you know, and, and this constant refrain that Palestine is freeing us can also be seen here. Palestine is freeing us because it is showing us people without limbs, people in wheelchairs, people who who require assistance to literally move from A to B, who are still not just being cared for by other people, but who still have agency and who are still part of a community and who are still part of organizing for a free Palestine, again, both from within Palestine and in the diaspora.
3: Mm, absolutely, and I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to how you've sort of seen um, seen this kind of play out in in your own communities among disabled folks in so-called Australia.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I've so I've been very lucky that um, you know, from probably maybe about a, a week and change after the escalation uh, on October seventh, I was asked to provide some support from my sickbed where I have spent um, several months now. Um, I'm largely housebound. There are days where I'm completely bedbound. But I got asked, hey, can you help us from where you are through your phone? And it's been one of those things that has been very liberating and very interesting to sort of think about. And I'm very lucky to be involved with pre-disabled and less physically disabled activists, who see the value of not just all people, and within that including seeing the value of disabled people, but actually see the specific value of what disabled people can bring to the front, which is, um, and this is actually my, my girlfriend, uh, Kate Pern, always says this, which is, the one thing that most disabled people have is time. And to me, I think that that is something that um, I'm hoping increasingly more and more people see value. And we do have – I'm in bed, so there's a lot of things that I can't do, but there's one thing that I can do, which is be on my laptop, be on my phone, calling people, emailing, editing videos, making infographics, whatever it is that's necessary, working with media, which is becoming increasingly important. Mm. Those are the sort of roles that um, I'm seeing more and more people sort of really see the value of disabled people stepping into and assisting those disabled people to step into those roles.
3: So I also know that, um, you know, both as a queer trans Jewish person and as a leading researcher in transgender and queer health in so-called Australia, you've got beef with Israeli pinkwashing. So I was wondering, (laughs) pivoting to that, how have you seen that factor into the current phase of intensified Israeli colonial violence? And why is it so important to kind of resist this with an acknowledgement of the interconnection between that and disability justice in pursuit of Palestinian liberation?
4: Mm. Well, it's interesting because one, the first thing that I'd like to share with you is that I've been speaking with other um, trans anti-Zionist act, uh, activists and advocates who are also in a similar sort of intersection, I suppose, to me. And one of the things that we've been talking about, and this was a conversation that I had with another good friend of mine who was listen only last night, is that one of the crossovers is that we are slowly seeing this increasing unwillingness to have a quote unquote balanced debate about these things. So, one of the main crossovers for me always when I'm looking at things like other liberation movements and and the sort of touch points between them and trans liberation is that we are in that it is these groups are put in such oppressed. Positions, but not only are they put in oppressed positions, their oppressors are also being given equal platform. Um, And so it's in this, and and we're seeing that with pinkwashing too. So suddenly we have quote unquote LGBT people, particularly from within Israel, um, posting pro IDF content and, um, you know, saying, well, maybe it's good for the gays. Maybe the military is good for the gays. Look, the first. Rainbow flag in Gaza, which is a lie, which is a, which we just we just know is a lie. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is where a lot of the crossover, that is where a lot of the crossover comes in. It, it's about liberation from oppression, but it's also about this dynamic where we are constantly forced to um, face our oppressors in supposedly, you know, sort of balanced ways. You know, we're we're supposed to accept. I'm supposed to accept having you know, trans-exclusionary radical feminists on the same panel as me. Palestinians are expected to have pro-Israel Zionists on the same panels as them, on the same news coverage as them, in the same articles as them. Um, and that alone is absolutely ridiculous and also telling of how little these kind of groups actually get listened to by the general public, that you would even entertain the thought of putting a Palestinian whose life is going to be forever changed by this genocide in the same room, article, discussion, forum, whatever, as someone who wants that person and their entire family killed in the name of a god that they don't even believe in, on the land that they are not from and their ancestors are also not from.
3: So finally, I guess, do you have any messages that you would like to send, um, particularly to disabled listeners, about finding sustainable ways to stay with the trouble and act in solidarity with Palestine?
4: <clears throat> I mean, my message to both cripples and people who have cripples in their life is come together and and do it and make those spaces so that more disabled people, so that people who are very crippled who are very mentally unwell, who cannot get out of the house, whatever it is, consider that our involvement in these kind of movements is not only like a cool thing that it would be great if it would happen, but it is essential And our absence and our silence, our forced silence in these spaces is shocking. Increasingly so because we're seeing so many people coming you know, out of Gaza who are who are disabled, who are in this. Those do those people deserve to be out in the world? Then you, my disabled friend, also to be out in the world. And you, my allied, my cripple allied friends, deserve to have us with you. And need to think about how do we include people? How do I include my bedbound friend? How do I include my friend who's too autistic for protest? You need to think about these things because I, because we have. Not just intrinsic value as human beings, but often our perspectives, our skill sets are radically different due to our disabilities. And they bring a lot of, uh, they bring so much more to activism than I think a lot of people would even consider.
0: And that's all for Women on the Line today. You just heard from independent queer researcher Dr. Shoshana Rosenberg about disability and trans solidarity with Palestine. In the face of Israel's ongoing violent occupation. If what you heard was distressing and you need to speak to someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners can call 13YARN, and queer listeners can call QLife on 1800 184 527. Earlier in the show, we heard Iris Lee's interview with Farada about their experience with long COVID, disability, and the failure of the Australian healthcare system. Thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Carvara. The featured song on today's episode was Watani by all-girl Palestinian hip-hop collective Etija. I'm Sen and tune into Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station.